0: In John eight fifty one, Jesus said, Most assuredly I say to you, If anyone keeps my word, he shall never see death. Then the Jews said to him, Now we know that you have a demon. They had already accused him of being a Samaritan and having a, a demon. And they said, Now we know you have a demon. Abraham is dead, and the prophets, and you say... If anyone keeps my word, he shall never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham, who is dead, and the prophets are dead? Whom do you make yourself to be? Well, he's going to give them a very clear answer on that. Jesus, in verse 54, answered and he said, If I honor myself, my honor is nothing. It is my father who honors me, of whom you say that he is your God. You have not known Him, but I know Him. I know Him to such a degree that if I say I do not know Him, I will be a liar like you. Can you stop there for a second and notice, Jesus? I will be a liar like you. Jesus Christ is amazing the way He ministers. And yet there is there's no name-calling here. This is just the calm, clear truth of God. He says, you say, you know him and you're liars. You don't. If I say that I don't know him, I will be a liar like you. But I do know him and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day and he saw it and was glad. Then the Jews said to him, you are not yet 50 years old. And have you seen Abraham? There are a lot of. Thoughts on that statement right there before we get on into the outline, the message. A lot of thoughts on that statement. You are not yet 50 years old and have you seen Abraham? Given the fact that Jesus, we know, died around the age of 33 and he's not that far away from his death even now, why would they pick the age 50? Why would they pick the number 50? Why wouldn't they say you're not even 35 yet, judging by the looks of you? The Bible says that Jesus Christ was a man of constant sorrows and well acquainted with grief. I think it's very possible with so many endless encounters like this one here with so much rejection that the sorrow in his heart had aged him far beyond his years. Why would they pick that age? You are not yet 50 years old as if to say you look like you're about 50. And yet... How can you say you've seen Abraham? There is another thought on that, and that is that the the Levites pretty much were done with their Levitical ministry when they were 50 years old. And they might be saying, at the same time, you haven't even come to the place of full maturity as a minister, even if you were legitimate. There's just so much packed in here. I tend to think it's the sorrow that he bore daily in the face of sin as he came to rescue sinners. And he said to them, most assuredly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. They had said to him, in verse 53, who do you make yourself to be? Here he says, before Abraham was, I am. And he gives them the crystal clear answer. And the reaction is that they took up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself, and he went out of the temple, going through the midst of them, and so passed by. As I look at this, I see, first of all, in verse 51, a very, very great promise, and it has to do with death. Then I see, following that, what we could call the devil's tool. That's their wicked tongues. And then this great I am statement, and finally, the hidden Savior As they picked up stones to cast at him, to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself. It is a very sad day when Jesus Christ hides himself from an individual. And here he hid himself from them in more ways than one. But let's look at this great promise in verse 51 to read most assuredly. I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. This is one of those mighty sayings of Jesus that when you come across it, it seems to tower in the face of anything near it. It's just a gigantic statement. And the interesting thing about the Gospel of John is it's full of statements like this. To say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. That is a monumental statement. What is he talking about? Well, there are enough details here to take a few minutes and discuss it. One thing for sure is that it's a promise concerning the first death. The Bible speaks of the first death and the second death. The first death, in the simplest way, is just physical death. But this promise has a lot to do with that. When he says you will never see death. For the non-believers that were standing there, it's an absolute truth. There's so much in there in terms of the way, the truth, the life. Because these people are rejecting him. They've now accused him of being a Samaritan, which is... A half-breed both ethnically with the intermarriage of the groups as well as a half-breed theologically and thus the ultimate insult but then saying he's demon-possessed so that everything he's done, all the power that he has is supernatural. If they see it, it's from Satan. So they're totally rejecting him. They're the biblical candidates for the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit for which there is no forgiveness to reject Christ is to end all hope of forgiveness because he is the only one who can forgive you. So as they stand there together and he says this, it's an absolute truth in the face of these non-believers, even though they are sort of banding together in their rejection. And it's funny how people do that, isn't it? People will hear the gospel, hear the claims of Christ, and then they'll make their decision and then reject him. And then they gather together with other Christ rejectors. You find that when you're first born again. You're so excited. You've been set free. Your eyes are open. You can't wait to go tell all your friends that are bound and miserable like you were the good news. Some of them come to Christ and the rest of them reject Him. And it's almost like they're driven into a, a more intimate fellowship as they lock arms one with another in their agreement to reject Christ. And I think that subtly, on the back of their minds, is false hope and confidence. That the more of us there are that agree on this, the better our chances of facing God and sort of bulldozing over the way of Jesus Christ and finding another way and getting into heaven anyhow, just by sheer numbers. But you see, though man finds false security, and he always does, in the company of other Christ rejecters, All the marching that he might do down here, all the signs he might make, all the locking of arms in defiance of heaven are not going to affect the decrees of heaven concerning how you get there. Not going to affect that in even one tiny bit. Not one bit. Jesus said, Most assuredly I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. So whether you choose to walk with me, Or whether you choose not to, whether you choose to know me or whether you choose not to, it's a fixed reality. So he's saying that I solemnly tell you, if a man receives, if he believes, if he keeps my doctrine, he will never see death and despised and rejected as I am by you. That doesn't change the fact that life and death and heaven and hell and blessing and cursing depend and hinge entirely upon me and my sayings. You cannot change that. And he's saying you need to humble yourselves and make the right choice. This isn't anything new. In the Old Testament, in Deuteronomy chapter 30, Moses, taking his leave of Israel, he said to them in Deuteronomy thirty fifteen, he said, See, I have set before you today life and good and death and evil. And then down in verse 19, he said of Deuteronomy 30, I call heaven and earth as a witness today against you, that I have set before you life and death, blessing and cursing. He said, therefore, it's so clear to you, it's so clear to all of you, I urge you, choose life that both you and your descendants may live. You choose to walk with God And then you set the example so that your descendants who look toward you, who grow up with you, who follow along after you, they can go on to know God as well. Make the right choice. Jesus is saying to these people right here, you make sure you make the right choice because so many of them were making the wrong one. Don't allow yourself to be fooled into what maybe later in life you will look back on 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 the greatest folly of your whole existence. Don't allow yourself to be fooled into some little clique, some little group of ungodly friends who passed the joint, the marijuana around the circle, who passed the jug around the circle or whatever, mocking Christ together, maybe a circle of backsliders, apostates, who once claimed to have been into it, and now they have turned away from it, which only proves they never knew him at all. Don't allow yourself to be fooled by that. What folly! Though hand join in hand, the Bible says, the wicked will not go unpunished. And so Jesus says, make no mistake about it, most assuredly, if anyone keeps my word, and that's the only way, he will never see death. And to say, keep my word, is not just the words he's saying right there, but it's to, to look at everything that he taught in his ministry, because it all fits together. Everything about heaven, everything about hell, everything about death, everything about judgment. Everything about the accountability of your words, your life, your deeds, all of it. If you can embrace all of what I have to say, all that I am, you will never see death. And so this is an unchanging truth, even in the face of a non-believer, no matter how many friends he gathers together to build his false confidence. But for the Christian, this is an absolute encouragement for the believer. Especially when you look at some of the details to say... Most assuredly, he said in John 6:47, just a few chapters earlier, he said, Most assuredly, almost the same thing, I say to you that he who believes in me has everlasting life. Here again, he says, Most assuredly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. That is to say that this is something that he was sounding out throughout his ministry. He was very clear on this. And thus for us as believers and all of us are going to die, these become tremendous, tremendous words. Let's look at some of the details attendant to this. First of all, as you look at this, obviously it's not to be taken literally. I mean, every human being is going to die physically. So he's not even remotely saying that you wouldn't die, which of course is how they were taking it. Secondly here, in terms of detail, when he says you'll never see death... What he means is that you will be delivered from spiritual death and the resulting condemnation. Spiritual death, which is separation from God, and all men are born under that spiritual death, and then there is a resulting condemnation. So to say you will never see death is to say that you'll be delivered from spiritual death. This is so great. Once you're born again in Christ, Jesus said you must be born again. You don't sort of soak your way into the kingdom of God with religious beliefs and ceremonies and truths. You must be born again, detonated on the inside with the life of God. Once you are born again, you can never be unborn again. We're going to get into Romans, into the profound reality of salvation and how... Powerful saving faith is when it's quickened in you by the hand of God. And thus to become born again is to have a life that once it is given will never become unlife. If you look at it from God's side and he knows everything ahead of time and he knows everything about you and salvation must come from the work of the Holy Spirit to quicken you you hath, the old King James says, you hath he quickened? Then to be born again, there must be a quickening that comes from God himself. And that quickening makes you alive. The hand of faith reaches up and grabs his hand and he quickens you and his life comes surging into you. And once you become alive spiritually, you can never become spiritually dead again. Nothing can reverse that work of God. And that is why any other theological view that would overlook that and see being born again as just coming into a set of beliefs and maybe later rejecting those beliefs falls far short of the miracle of the new birth. To keep His word is to take His word of who He says He is, embrace it into your heart and thus embrace Him as Lord and Savior to become born again and that moment of time when you do that from the depths of your soul and it's to gain a life from him that once given will never be taken away. Because if God knows everything and he does, if he's worked this all out an eternity past, which he would have to being God because he's outside of time entirely, then God isn't so stupid as to go around and give life which isn't going to work out. That's ridiculous. Now, we may operate like that, but God cannot operate like that. You understand? So to say, he shall never see death, you put that with, and I will give you another comforter and he will abide with you until you become dead again. Did he say that about the Holy Spirit? No, he said he will abide with you forever. So we immediately, in this great promise, plunge into the wonderful sea of grace and the reality of forever in terms of eternal life. Also, to look at this is to realize that to never see death is to be delivered from dying in the torments of the unforgiven. To die without Christ is to die in torment. To die without Christ, to die unforgiven, is to die with the crushing weight of a life of wickedness and sin and rebellion to God caving in on you as you take a fearful leap into the dark with the reality that you might have to face Him soon. And you're not ready. It is a horrifying thing. But to go to your grave, to go to your death as Christians, as children of God, is to go with the truth of Hebrews where the writer to the Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 15, that Jesus came to release those who through the fear of death were all their lifetime Subject to bondage. To never see death is in the first death to not go through the torments of an unforgiven, uncleansed, unsaved, sin-darkened human being. And to jump fearfully into the dark. I thank God for that. See, I'm well aware of my shortcomings. I'm well aware of the fact that when I die... I'll look back and see all kinds of failures and everything else. But I'm also well aware of the fact that's why Jesus has already died for me. And he's a real savior for all my real sins. He came to destroy the works of the devil and to release all those who through their whole life were subject to bondage through the fear of death. All the different research indicates that studies on teenagers as well as adults, that people go through their day and they think about death every few minutes in one way or another. To become a Christian, to keep the sayings of Jesus, to know that you will never see death becomes the greatest thing in the whole world. Because, yes, I'm going to die physically, but I am going to die in the grace of God and Jesus Christ knowing that I am forgiven in that sweet release. Now, another practical thought here. When he says you will never see death, some have thought this, you know how people get hyper spiritual? They read things into the Bible that aren't there, and they'll read something like this, and they'll say, God told me that what this means, and they think they have some big, grand revelation. Some have taken this to say that you will never suffer real bodily pain and agony in dying if you know Christ that he will simply be there in such a powerful way that there will be no pain. That's not reality. Jesus isn't saying that you will go into your death without some kind of bodily struggle. He's not saying that. Neither is he saying that there won't be some emotional suffering. You see, flesh and blood, which is what we are, must and will feel. And thus, as Christians, when it comes our time to die, some of us will get our prayer or to die in our sleep. And there will be no pain for those. I have an aunt who died an agonizing death with cancer. I was greatly refreshed when I found out that right at her bedside where she died, she had my tapes on Psalm 23 and the Good Shepherd. And that that was... The tonic she had taken with her into her grave. It just so blessed my heart. Not that they were my tapes, but that that's the truth she died with. The Good Shepherd. There was a comfort in her soul that no drug could ever bring. Some of us may die in great pain and agony. That's reality. We need to face that. The great Richard Baxter, J.I. Packer refers to him as the seraph-like Baxter. Angelic. He was so holy. Such a man of God, he was on his deathbed, and he was in pain. And he said, I groan, but I do not grumble, because the pain was real. But so was the comfort in his heart with the Holy Spirit. Death is a very serious thing. Even when the sting of unforgiveness has been taken away, and you know you're forgiven, it's still difficult. So we need a realistic look at this as we carry the wonder of the promise into our death when that time comes to not taste of death to not see death is to not see the great sting of death which comes to you if you die unforgiven can you turn in your bible to first corinthians 15 to verse 54 kind of wrap this thought up here and i have often spoken from this text at funerals And it's good that you take these things and think them through and memorize them for yourself for when it's your time to go. But also because, you know, we all have families and loved ones and it's inevitable that you're going to be standing or sitting next to somebody who's going to start asking you questions. They're going to need your help when they're dying. You need to know these things. These are the truths that enable you to die well. We need to be ready to help our loved ones to die well. In 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty four, Paul writes and he says, So when this corruptible has put on incorruption, and this mortal has put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. And then he says in verse fifty five, "O death, where is your sting? O Hades, the place of the dead, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin is to die in your sins unforgiven. And the strength of sin is the law. We've studied that in Romans, and he says, But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And so when we go to face that first death, if we will go with him, it's going to make all the difference. This is a promise concerning the first death, but it is also a promise. I am going to take you to another thought here. It is a promise concerning the second death. And I don't know how many of you have looked at this in the Bible, so it's worth taking the time just to show you the Bible speaks of a second death. You realize, of course, that every human being, once they're born, is going to live forever. Every person will live forever. It's a matter of where you spend forever. And so there is this promise here, and it affects the second death. When Jesus says, most assuredly, I say to you that if anyone keeps my word, you shall never see death. He is talking about deliverance from the second death. And that is where those that die and they don't know Christ, they go to a place where God keeps them for a time. And we talked about it Sunday in terms of that holding tank. And then at the appointed hour, they are raised effectively and they go and they stand before God. And then they are given their sentence. And the Bible refers to that sentence and what follows as the second death. Let me show you. Turn in your Bible to Revelation, chapter 21, to verse 8. And here is the second death. And we read, But the cowardly the unbelieving, the abominable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars. And these would be people that refuse to let go of those things to embrace Christ. Because in the book of 1 Corinthians, Paul writes and he lists off a lot of these types of people and he says, and such were some of you, but now you are washed, now you are cleansed, now you are sanctified. These are those that refuse to let go of that. He says, These people shall have their part. And here's a description of hell. They will have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is, what does it say? The second death. The second death, if I could put it this way, is far worse than the first death. You see, it's one thing to die the first time, effectively, physically, And to be unforgiven, there's torment and there's fear, but you still don't know what's on the other side. If you knew, there would be a lot more torment and a lot more fear. Every single person who died without Christ would die screaming and screaming at the top of their lungs if they knew of this second death and this lake that burns with fire and brimstone. There wouldn't be one person who could die peacefully in any way under any drug-induced state of so-called comfort and peace and so you read here they will have their part in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone which is the second death and what I want you to see here is that it burns with fire and brimstone it goes on and on and in the, the midst of this though it's called the second death in the ultimate sense death in the Bible separation from God everlasting life in your soul God's life in your soul that's life to have that removed from your soul forever that's the second death and with no hope of ever having that that's the second death it is eternal existence without the life of God in your soul the reality is if you think about it even in this life think of how the Holy Spirit so often called the hound of heaven is there speaking to men's hearts There's moments even in the worst of sinners' lives, the most unconcerned individuals that don't ever come to Christ, they still, even they have soft moments where God's speaking to them, where you're witnessing to them, and they even smile. And they say, they have these rare moments where they even twinkle a little bit. And they say, you know, I, I kind of feel good right now as you're telling me about all this. I, I don't know why. You know, you know me, I'm such a sinner and everything, but I kind of have a good feeling. That's right when you want to close in on them and say, that good feeling is Him. Don't stop feeling it now. Open up, receive Him now. People are one to Christ right at that point. Others back off they get hard but you see what I'm saying is to go through this life here with the Holy Spirit tugging at you with the Holy Spirit knocking at the door of your heart repeatedly 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 every day that you live coming after you with the love of God in Christ to suddenly even that withdrawn forever is to have a radical change and then to have on top of the withdrawal of the promptings of God's Spirit upon your heart and life, and to have exchanged for that the lake of fire that burns with brimstone forever, it is indeed the second death. And there is a distinct consciousness there. You have to realize that. Turn in your Bible to Mark chapter 9, verse 47. In hell there is a distinct consciousness. That is in great measure what makes it hell. Mark chapter 9 verse 47. Jesus spoke of, right at the end there, of that verse, verse 47, of being cast into hell fire. And then in verse 48 he described it and he says, where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. He actually says, their worm." does not die, and the fire is not quenched. I don't think he's really talking about worms eating you. I think what he's talking about is your conscious mind eating you. And that the worms that eat at you, that penetrate the very essence of your being, they never die. So that... You're cast into the lake of fire and it isn't like you're thrown in and it gets so hot you black out. And you can stay blacked out forever. No, no, no. Nobody's blacking out. Jesus said, where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. That gnawing of the conscience, that agony of the mind is a worm and a fire. It's going to burn you alive forever. It's really effectively impossible for us to know if the fire is literal or if the fire is almost wholly your consciousness burning you up as you live forever, exiled from the glory of God, and possibly can see God, and possibly can even see those in some way enjoying God forever, and to be cut off. If you think of Abraham was in paradise, we talked about it Sunday, Abraham was in paradise and then there were all the unsaved people. There was the beggar who died, he was in paradise. And then there was the rich man who was so cruel and ungodly and a great gulf between and the one wanted some refreshment from the other side from Abraham. He said, I can't, there's a great gulf, I cannot come over. Part of the torment of the rich ungodly man who died and was on the hell side of that holding place was to see them all blessed over on the paradise side. Obviously, they're over there drinking cool waters, refreshing drinks of some kind. And he's looking over and he's saying, just pass a few drops over to my side, just a few drops. I can't, I'm sorry. Well, that only added to his agony. So to talk about being delivered from the second death is to be delivered from a gnawing existence that's going to eat at you like worms and burn at you like a fire, where forever you are conscious of what you are missing out on. And you cannot change that state of existence. Oh, thank God for Jesus. Thank God for Jesus. You know, I've done a lot of barbecuing in my life. And before I had gas, I had briquettes. And you know, you have to get over them and fan them and that heat gets on you and sometimes you singe yourself in there. And there's been many times where I looked at all those little briquettes in there burning and I thought, oh, except for the grace of God, that would be me among many others forever. It's a horrifying thought and yet it is such a wonderful point of rejoicing to know if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. I am never going to see that. I was on my way to that, but I'm never going to see that. And then to contrast that with what we will have in heaven. The glory of God. We will see a burning. There will be a burning. It will be the bright burning of His glory. We will even ourselves burn, but in a wholly different way. A joyful burning. Those that lead many to Christ, Daniel said, will shine as the stars forever. Jesus gave the parable of the workers in the vineyard where the guy in the morning went out. and he's, He agreed for a contract of a penny. Come work all day. I'll give you a penny. You have no money. A penny will be a lot. Later in the day, he got some other workers. Later in the day, some more. Finally, at the very end of the day, he said, Do you want some money? Do you come and work too? I'll give you a penny. Everybody at the end of the day got a penny. The people that went in the morning were mad because they'd been there all day, and they got a penny, and the guys that just came, they got a penny too. That's like heaven. We all get heaven. But then Jesus talked about the parable of the talents where you're given your talent, and some brought forth for their talents a return on it, had five, bought five more, and so on down to the guy who had won and buried it, gospel privilege rejected and unsaved, effectively. And there's teaching there, you were faithful over this, I'll give you rulership over this. There's teaching there that speaks of having a greater glory for some in heaven. We all get heaven. No shacks, no shanties, no other side of the tracks in heaven. We all get heaven. But some will burn brighter than others. So beware lest you get to heaven and you're 20 watt. Because I plan on coming around as a hundred and fifty watt floodlight, and you'll wish you were on the other side of the tracks when I come by, shining. <laughs> oh, well, here comes Mr. Floodlight, and I'm looking at you, going, "Do you have any light? Is your is your bulb burned out?" Oh, I'm sorry, I didn't realize you're one water. <laughs> Enjoy heaven, see ya. That isn't gonna be like that, but. Paul said that those that suffer, he said the suffering of this present time is not worthy to be compared with the glory. So there's going to be this burning of glory. It is effectively, I think, your rewards in heaven in the most part. It's how you suffer and how you labor for him down here. And what you're willing to go through in terms of spiritual warfare and resistance, proportionately you are rewarded. And I think the reward, it's not a gold crown. It's not so much anything like a medal. It is God filling you with His glory. It is your capacity to hold the glory of God. So while others that rejected Christ are burning in hell forever, we're going to be burning in heaven forever with the glory of God. The choice is yours to ignore these issues, to go get in your little clique to think that that is going to get you somewhere past all this, forget it. Jesus said, What is a prophet if you gain the whole world and lose your own soul? And so the promise concerning the second death, is heaven or it's hell. Jesus said in Revelation 2:11, "He that has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says, to the churches, he who overcomes shall not be hurt' by the second death. I hope that those words mean more to you now. Jot that down. Revelation chapter 2, verse 11. He that has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, he who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. And then in verse 51 of John, again, he says, John 8, most assuredly I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. How amazing. Here towers, one of the greatest statements ever made. It's like a lighthouse to the lost. And the response to this great promise is the abusive tongue of these godless men. And so we come, we're going to move quickly from here. From the great promise, second main point here, to the devil's tool. And you see the abusive tongue, John 8:52. The Jews said to him, Now we know you have a demon. Abraham is dead, and the prophets... And you say, if anyone keeps my word, he'll never taste death, and so on. Now we know you have a demon. See, what happened here was they lost the argument. They're going along, and they're arguing, and everything. Jesus calmly gives them back an answer. And his answers don't just come as words. They come with the power of the Holy Spirit. There's there's something that hit the heart when Christ is speaking to you. And so they lose the argument. And once they realize they've lost the argument silence in the argument they resort to what men always resort to and that's personal abuse and what i want you to see here is that they really do get into name calling and they really do get into slander and everything else and this is one of the favorite tools of the devil don't be shocked when you're sharing christ when you're seeking to live your life for christ to lead others to his love and you become the object of this it's one of the favorite tools of the devil And it has been that way from the time of Jesus until now. You commit yourself to pick up your cross and follow Christ, and you're committing yourself to be slandered at times. You're committing yourself to evil reports circulated about you. You're committing yourself to lying stories that have been diligently invented and then are greedily swallowed up by gossip-hungry ears. The truth is, you know, you just commit your life to God and you just respond as Christ did here with his wonderful example here for the Christian. He just calmly bore their insults, and God will vindicate your cause. I think it's helpful to realize that when we are facing that, that we're just drinking the same cup that our Lord drank. We are partaking of the same cup that he drank of, and that the lies of his enemies, because it's his enemies, that come our way are not going to do us any injury in heaven. Remember that. No matter what people say about you down here, and it's often you're wounded in the house of your friends. With Christians, they kill their own wounded far too often. It gets very ugly and very vicious because the devil plants tears within the church, and they polarize carnal Christians to them, and then he works his work. So it's the tongue he uses, but always remember That whatever people can say about you, it affects nothing concerning heaven and their view of you. God, the Father, Jesus, the holy angels, they all see. Jesus said, my Father seeks my honor and he seeks my glory. Of whom you say he is your God. He said in verse 55, but you haven't known him. I know him. If I say I don't know him, I'm a liar like you. Boy, wouldn't that be great if we could talk like that? If I was to say I don't know him, I'm a liar. Jesus, I was always walking in that intimate fellowship with the Father. I know him and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day and he saw it and was glad. And so many of the encounters with Abraham and God in the Old Testament speak of that. We've talked about it along the way in detail. Peter looked back on this time. And I always imagine these writing their portions of the Bible looking back at their time with Jesus. Peter, John, when he wrote John on the island of Patmos. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 23, Peter said of Jesus, who when he was reviled, did not revile in return. Maybe he was just thinking about days like this. Certainly his cross, he was the same way. When he suffered, he didn't threaten. And here's a secret. He committed himself to him who judges righteously. That's why he said, You commit yourself in the face of whatever comes toward you through the tongues of men as you're seeking just to do God's work and share His love, and He will judge righteously. Listen, He is seeking your glory. And we talked about that for minutes already, didn't we? He's seeking your glory forever in heaven. You seek His glory here, and He will take care of your glory there. And nothing anybody can do down here can ruin that. I want to encourage you today. Make a dip of your heart. Actually commit yourself, as Jesus did, to the Father who judges righteously. Make it the prayer of your heart today that you're going to live this way. In your homes, and your marriages, when your children misbehave and they make you madder than you've ever been in your whole life. You know, they've gone from being that precious little infant you held in your arms and showed everybody, I just love this little angel until now they've become a 10-year-old demon, you know? When, you know how life is, I'm just kidding, sort of, but you know <laughs> that the difficulties of life, Proverbs 15.1 says, A soft answer turns away wrath, but harsh words stir up anger. Proverbs 15.2 says, The tongue of the wise uses knowledge rightly. The mouth of fools just pumps out foolishness. We can yield our mouth to the Lord, or we can yield it to the devil. Peter knew that himself. He had been used that way with Christ. And so we see the devil's great tool, the tongue, and we see the great reaction of our Lord. He just calmly continues to minister back to them. And then we come, in the third main point here, to the great I am in verses 57 and 58. Here they said, who are you claiming to be? And now he tells them, and he's claiming to be God. He says in verse 58, Most assuredly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. And right here in an instant, we are plunged into the great sea of the Godhead. We are plunged into the mystery of this great deep place of eternal God where our eyes cannot look, our minds cannot fathom this I am. This language... That Jesus uses two words here for us I am before Abraham was he literally said to them before Abraham was I am already existing the continuous state of existence Abraham was born and he died I existed before I was born and I existed forever before I was born I will exist forever After I die, I am always existing before Abraham ever began to exist. It is the clearest possible statement on being God. It is even beyond, in a sense, if he had just said, Hey, I'm God. Don't you get it? Because people are always in the crowd yelling that, right? There's always a weirdo. Just go to the local mental hospital. There's people up and down, you know, all the padded cells. You get them out. Oh, this one thinks he's Mr. Holy Spirit. This one here thinks he's Jesus. This guy's just plain God. this guy over here thinks he's God. But he didn't even say that. Because actually, if you look through the whole of the Gospels, Jesus does not come right out and say, I am God. What he comes right out and he says is, I am eternally existing. And he put himself even beyond all the crackpots that would say they are God into his own category alone. He says, I am, and he effectively is saying, I am the God of the Old Testament. That is exactly what he said to them. Because when he said, I am... They knew immediately where he was coming from. You see, in Exodus chapter 3, Moses is standing at the burning bush, and he really doesn't want to go deliver the Egyptians. He's gotten used to being a shepherd. He loves living out of Midian and just having a wonderful life. He's got a great family. It's wonderful. And it's a simple life compared to the pressures of Egypt. And besides, the last time he made an attempt to deliver his people... He got him in a lot of trouble. So when God says, Moses, I want, to go, want you to go deliver the people, he's not into it really at all. So the, God has to convince him. Finally, he says, they're going to want a name, Lord. Last time I wasn't clear enough. They're going to want a name this time, Lord. Who shall I say? What shall I say is the name of the God that is sending me? And he says in Exodus three fourteen, God said unto Moses, you want a name? This is my name. I am that I am. Thus shall you say to the children of Israel, I am has sent you. And God said moreover to Moses, You shall say unto the children of Israel, The Lord God of your fathers. This is who I am. I am the Lord God of your fathers. I am the God of Abraham. I am the God of Isaac. I am the God of Jacob. That's the God you will say that has sent you. And this is my name forever. I am. That's my name. I am the everlasting one. From everlasting to everlasting in both directions. That's the God of the Old Testament. That's Jehovah God. So when they said, You're a demon-possessed Samaritan. You're not even 50 yet. You're saying you, you knew Abraham. And he just goes above and beyond it all. And he says, You want to know the real truth? I'm the God of the Old Testament. I'm Jehovah God. I am Abraham's God. I'm Jacob's God. I'm Moses' God. I am the God of the Bible. I am the only God. And they had mentioned the prophets, and the prophets had pointed to him. And you see, what's their reaction? Were they confused? No. It was still clear because in John 8:59, the Bible says they took up stones to throw at him because he was claiming to be God. Specifically, their God, the God of of their heroes, Jehovah God, the Everlasting One. They took up stones to cast at him. You see, people today want to make a big issue about whether or not Jesus is God. The liberals come to the Bible. They want to explain away his sayings. His enemies had no problem figuring out who he said he was. They picked up stones to cast at him. They knew he was claiming to be God, And his claim to be God in this I am statement is the rock of ages. It's the rock upon which we rest our eternity. Great practical comfort. Because here I look at a man who is not just a man. As I look at Jesus Christ, I'm not just looking at a good guy who might help me go in the right direction. I'm looking at the end of the line. I'm looking at the top as it were. I'm looking at God. When I come to trust in Him, to take His sayings and to embrace them and to keep them and to trust that I will never see death because I trusted Him, I need to know I'm not just trusting a man. I'm trusting God. And His enemies were clear He was making that claim. And I am clear that He was making that claim. And I rest my eternity on that. Upon a life I did not live, upon a death I did not die. I place my whole eternity, and Jesus is the reason why. He is the I am. Choose Him, Choose glory and do it today. Get it settled so you can know that you will never see death. Let's pray, shall we? Father, thank you, God, for your love in Christ to us. Lord God, look upon our souls, forgive our sin. There is anyone here, Lord, that is not going to heaven at this moment. They're trifling with their very existence, finding a false hope in some group they're hanging out with. I pray, God, in the name of Jesus, you would so overshadow their souls. You would not give them one moment's peace until they have gotten right with you and settled the issue of their eternity. God, that your love would so melt the heart that every one of us could be brought to that point where... We stand with you no matter what. Whether all around us forsake us, whether they slander us, whether they falsely accuse us, whether they persecute us, we stand with you, God. We pray, Lord, that you would work that great work within each and every heart here today, that none of us would leave here without you, Lord, and that we would know you as the rock of ages, as the anchor of our souls, that we would find life in you. So, Lord Jesus, we pray, save our souls, save every person here and every person listening on the Internet, and every person that will hear these tapes. God, work your work of salvation. Lord, use us. Send us out and use us to burn brightly as the light of the world to tell any who will listen of this great salvation in Jesus Christ. Send us, Lord, guide the steps of our feet and order the words of our mouth that we can be those that are used to lead others to freedom in you. Holy Spirit, so fill our hearts with your life and your love that we cannot, even if we try, hold back from sharing the gospel. Embolden us, Lord. Give us boldness and give us a heart that cares to reach out and to share with those whom you would seek to save. And we will give you all the glory as you are seeking our highest glory and our highest good. For we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.